Our scripture passage today is from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of, Lo of the Lord, the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Well, Good morning, Calvary family. Welcome to Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week, which, as Caroline just gave us a rundown for, will be a, a busy and full week here at the church. I hope you guys can make it and be a part of our Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday services, as well as making it in to see the new art display, which will be up over the weekend. And... Uh, I would like to congratulate myself for being the last person to preach to an empty room. Uh, it's been a long year of this, and we are really excited to get back to a semblance of normalcy starting next week for those who can join us. And I've just been thinking about that this last year and last Palm Sunday, and just we didn't really know what the year would hold and how the Lord has provided for us, and that it's just encouraging to me to be heading back in the right direction, and I hope it is for you as well. So I am glad to be bringing this season to an end for us this morning. Before we start, let's uh, have a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that even though we are scattered, that you are with us and that our hearts are united in the fellowship of the Spirit. We pray that we would feel that this morning, that you would be with us, that you would speak to us through your words. Lord, we pray for this week ahead that we have set aside to remember and remind ourselves of all the events of Holy Week. And I just ask for myself and for all of us that it would be a special time of repentance and faith and trust, which would culminate in an Easter morning. We thank you for the resurrection that you have promised us because you 
raised your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week, Pastor Gerald preached on Jesus teaching us and modeling for us the correct use of power. And one of his points was that power is not fundamentally the problem. It's really how we use power which becomes the problem. And that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 20 that the right use of power is to sacrificially wield it for the good of others. But I think the difficulty for some of us in accepting that there's good uses of power, maybe you still kind of wrestle with that idea, is because so often when we see power, we find its bedfellow pride right next to it. There's an, old, there's an old saying, you probably heard it, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've all seen this play out in so many ways in our own lives. And it doesn't matter if it's official power, like the power of a boss or a teacher or a parent, or if it's just the soft power that comes in social settings. Power tells us that we matter And then pride comes in and grows in that space like mold on wet bread. It just is always right there. And then once the pride has grown and festered, it demands to be defended. And so the power is then wielded to entrench and protect the pride and any threats against it. And it really doesn't take very long to think of examples of this whether it's in churches or in our American moment or global events or even maybe a boss you had a few years ago that really got under your skin. We've seen power gone wrong more often than not. And we've often even not just seen it, we've been on the receiving end of it. We've felt it against us. And so we quickly associate power with pride and we throw them both away. And I've met, even met Christians throughout the years who don't even have uh, categories of church leadership because of the harm that they've experienced in local churches from people misusing power, which is a tragedy. And maybe that's some of you this morning, but I would encourage us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater because Jesus here in Matthew, is going to show us a different way forward. And in this passage, we're going to see that he lives out a paradox that is very rare to find, which is power with humility or humble power. And Jesus on Palm Sunday lives out the message from last week in real time. He brings it to life. He comes into Jerusalem in humility and power. And by doing so, he teaches us what power should look like in the kingdom of God. So I want us to look at this text this morning and then take some time to apply uh, what it means to be Jesus' followers in this context. So as we turn to the passage, I just want to give you a little bit of background because this is a tense moment in Israel, and there's a lot going on. 
And so let me just give you a little summary as we think about the triumphal entry. Recently, a few weeks before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And in doing so, he had created quite a stir. And there's all these people who have heard about this or heard the rumor of this, and they want to see this Jesus, the miracle worker. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders, because of that event, had decided that enough is enough. And so they double down on their plot to get Jesus killed. And all the while, we're arriving at Passover week, which is one of the most important weeks of the Jewish year, where the city of Jerusalem would have been packed with hundreds of thousands of people who were coming in for the celebration and the ceremony. And the surrounding villages and roadsides would have been full of pilgrims who have come to celebrate. And Passover would have also reminded the Jews of one other thing, that that was the time they celebrated God freeing them from being slaves and captives in Egypt. And so Passover every year would have stirred up the frustration and the anger and the longing for being under a Roman yoke. So on top of all that, you have an intensification of the desire to be free from the Roman rulers who were over Israel at this time. Ever since 63 BC, when the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem, Israel had been controlled by the Roman Empire, and it would stay under Roman rule until they tried to revolt in AD 70, 30 years after Jesus' ascension where the city and the temple were destroyed. And so in between being conquered by Rome 100 years before this and being destroyed by Rome again 100 or 40 years after this moment, Jerusalem simmers in tension. And it's right into this hornet's nest that Jesus comes on a donkey. And Jesus is quite intentional as you look at the passage about how he is going to enter. He gives very clear instructions. He says, go to the village, find this person, tell them I need the donkey and the colt. And the reason he does this is he's fulfilling the prophecy from the book of Zechariah, written hundreds of years before. You see it here in verse 5 of Matthew 21. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Zechariah writes that the coming king that has been so long promised to Israel is going to come in a unique way. He's going to come on a donkey. So in contrast to a horse or a mule, a donkey shows a king coming in peace and humility, coming to bring salvation to those trapped. And This is the first time as you read the Gospels which Jesus really is open about who he is. He's no longer hiding that he is Israel's Messiah. And so he gets on the donkey, he fulfills the prophecy, and he enters in to the storm. And the people in the crowds pick up pretty quickly. You see it in verse 9 when they start shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna was a word that meant salvation or God saves And the son of David was a messianic title. So they get it, or so they think, that their Messiah is here and salvation has come. The Roman yoke will be broken and they will be freed. 
And interestingly, they respond with palm branches, famously, which actually harkens back to the days of another famous Jew who 200 years before this, there was a man named Simon Maccabeus who had helped free Israel from Greek rule when they were under the control of the Greek empire. And people at that time had waved palm branches in a very similar parade. And so here comes Jesus, and they're giving him the treatment of the coming king that will set them free. And so it's clear what the crowd thinks is happening. They think that Jesus is their Messiah who's going to free them from the Romans. And so they are yelling, Hosanna, God save us. And I want to pause here just for a minute and look at this moment from three different angles, almost like holding up a emerald or a diamond and just kind of analyzing this moment. First, I want to take a second and just think about the beauty of this moment, that that Israel's long-awaited Savior has come. And this is an incredible sight. We see Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, coming into Jerusalem on the very day that the lambs were being selected for Passover. And the night before this, he was anointed by Mary and Bethany with an expensive perfume. And remember that the word Messiah means anointed, the anointed king. And Jesus says that she is anointing him for his burial, for his burial. So we know that this man on the donkey is both this long-awaited line of Judah, but he's also the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And Mark tells us that when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he goes straight to the temple, he looks around, and then he goes right back to Bethany. He doesn't do anything. He will come back the next day with a whip and clear the temple, but on the first day, he just goes to the temple and he takes in the moment. And I think he's fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi 3.1 where Malachi writes, Behold, I send my messenger, the Lord says, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we have the Passover lamb coming to Israel And when you read it from our perspective, it's a powerful and beautiful moment where we see Jesus coming in, knowing what he's doing, anointed for burial on the day of the selection of the Passover lambs. So there's the beauty of the moment. Then I want to take a second thinking about the irony of the moment, the irony of the moment, because in Luke's account, we read that the moment on Jesus' entry on the donkey where he sees the city for the first time. It seems like he comes around the bend, he sees Jerusalem. It says he burst into tears. Listen to this from Luke 19. And when he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus weeps 
over the tragedy of Israel missing their long-awaited Messiah. They've been looking forward to this moment for hundreds of years. Ever since King David, the prophets have written about a new David. And here he is, and his heart is to gather them in as their shepherd. And yet he knows that rejection and tragedy awaits him and awaits Israel. They miss their Messiah for the most part. And the temple is destroyed 40 years after this and is still destroyed to this very day. So we see the beauty of the moment. We see the irony of the moment. And then I want us to look finally at the power of the moment. Jesus comes humbly, yes, but he comes in power. I mean, think about the courage of Jesus that he's come to take on his enemies face to face, right into the storm, right into the mouth of the dragon. And yet he's on a donkey. Some of you may know the story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a a Medal of Honor winner from World War II who saved 75 wounded men from an exposed ridge during the Battle of Okinawa. He went up 75 times up the ridge during the night and carried them off one at a time, risking his life every time to re-enter enemy territory, bring someone back, bring them down, go back in, until he was just so exhausted he couldn't go anymore. And that's a great picture of what Jesus is doing here. That He's going to walk into enemy territory over and over again during Holy Week, every day, constantly under fire, surrounded by his opposition, coming to defeat our enemies and to save us. He's come to really defeat our three foes you read in the Bible of Satan, sin, and death. And in order to defeat them, he's got to take the full force of what they have to offer upon himself. So Satan and the workings of the betrayal and the anger and evil of the crowds and, the, and all the working behind the scenes with Judas. And we see sin laid upon him on the cross and we see the power of death poured out on Christ. And so in these three glimpses of this moment, these three sides of the diamond, we see a beauty, we see an irony, and we see a power of what Jesus has come to do on Palm Sunday. There's a lot, there's a lot there. And for us this morning, I just want to think about two takeaways because I think Jesus and what he's doing here is giving us a vision for the kingdom of God, a vision for the kingdom of God. So I want to think about that in two ways, that What is Jesus telling us about the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing? So firstly, Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and his kingdom should reflect him. He is the king, and his kingdom should reflect him. Kingdom means the king's dominion. That's where the word comes from. And so every kingdom naturally reflects the values and the priorities of the king. And I think the point that stood out to me the most this week as I was reading and studying this passage is this, that who Jesus was at this moment on Palm Sunday on his earthly mission hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. He's the same person in his heavenly reign. And the reason this stood out to me is I saw this in Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Listen listen to this passage in Revelation chapter 5. John writes, And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly for, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then it says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So did you, did you catch that? That John sees a vision of the heavenly courts and he's upset that there's no one powerful enough to bring about the consummation of the kingdom. And he's looking around. He's like, who's going to do it? And the elders say, it's okay. There's a lion. And he looks for the lion and he sees a lamb. And Jesus hasn't changed. He's still a humble king. And he's building a kingdom. He wants to build a kingdom through us that reflects a humble kingdom. And I think we have a hard time imagining this, like I said in the beginning, because we're just not used to seeing this use of power. We're way more used to what Luther, Martin Luther called a theology of glory than we are a theology of the cross. So what's a theology of glory? A theology of glory is marked by self-interest and pride. So it's posturing and it's clout, and it's celebrity, and it's Twitter followers, and it's a desire to gain and maintain insider status, and it's about me, 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 me. And it's hard to think of something that has made the gospel less compelling for the next generation than its association with a theology of glory. We've seen this over and over again inside the church and in our culture. We've seen enough ladder climbing. But we should look at Jesus, who was a lion for the Gentiles in cleaning out the temple so they could have their place of worship back, but who was a lamb for his own interest, who turned his own cheek but defended the other's cheek, and who, as Pastor Gerald pointed out last week, at the height of his power, took the role of a servant and washed the feet of those who would soon abandon him and then died in their place on a Roman cross. And even though it's vanishingly rare to see this sort of power, this is actually the call of the church to be the kingdom of God on earth in this very way. We have to maintain this tension. And so that's my second takeaway here is that we have to, or we are called to maintain the tension of humble power as the kingdom of God. And this is a difficult tension to maintain, no doubt. We are used to, and we are often usually good at, one or the other. So some of us would hear power and then we would hear the Apostle Paul write that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And we'd say, okay, I got it, power. I can do power. So I know a guy and I'm going to connect you and then we're going to build a platform and then let's get the right people on the board and we'll finance it and we'll have ad campaigns, influencers, big stages. We can do this, power. I know how to do power. And some of us hear humility and we hear Jesus saying that whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We're like, okay, okay, humility. I can, do, I can do humility. So we just lay low and we mind our own business and we're very careful not to offend anyone ever inside the church, outside the church, just kind of bunker down. 
humility. And both of those are wrong, that we cannot do the extremes of one or the other, but we have to do the paradox of them both. That the true danger for us is not power. It's not power, it's pride. We want power. We want to see lives change. We want to see patterns of sin broken. We want to see families restored and communities transformed, and we want to see generational sins redeemed and institutional evils corrected, and we want to see the gospel going forth around the world and the kingdom of God expanding and the Great Commission happening. We want that. We really want that. But then we see so often that in the pursuit of that power, pride comes with it. And we see famous preachers constantly falling or being revealed to be abusive or domineering or worse. But this is the kingdom we're called, we're called to. A powerful yet humble kingdom. Or a lion and a lamb kingdom. And this is the humble power that Jesus says can change the world. It defined him, it defines his kingdom, and it should define us as his people. And in closing, I just want to take a second to reflect on how the gospel addresses the issue of pride. Because I think the only answer to human pride is also found on Holy Week, that just a few days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is betrayed and he's hung on a Roman cross. And the Bible is clear. He's there for us. He's there for us. He could have he could have called down a legion of angels, but he's there for us. And the only way into this kingdom is submission in our hearts to this king who died for us and for our sins and was killed by the pride and the evil of the human heart. And this is the answer to pride, that when you see someone like this die for me, there's just no room anymore for pride. And so I'd ask you this morning as we close, have you trusted in this king, this humble king, that when you look at him in the triumphal entry, you see who he's really heading towards, and it's not towards anybody except his church, his bride, for you and for me. He's seeing that ahead of him. And when you see a glimpse of that Savior, it changes you. And it kills your pride, and it motivates you to follow him. So if you've never followed him this morning, if you've never handed your life over to him, I would encourage you to do that, even right now. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we look at you coming in to a city, knowing that you were going to be killed and tortured, mocked, and yet... You did it for us, Lord, that for the joy set before you, which was the redemption of your people, you endured the cross, despising its shame. Lord, we pray that we could be a people that reflect your vision of kingdom, that we want to be a people who care about the kingdom going forth in power, yet with still with humility. I pray that for myself. I pray that for us as a church. I pray that for churches in our country and around the world, that we could reflect something different that the culture can't explain. And in doing so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray for those this morning who are listening in who 
have made a safe spot in their heart for pride. Lord, that you would press into that and convict them and call all of us back into the way of Jesus. Thank you for what you did for us this holy week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.